Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the IASLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we will discuss the management of small cell lung cancer using a virtual tumor board format. Small cell is an aggressive subtype of lung cancer, accounts for about 13% of new diagnoses in the U.S., and for patients with advanced or extensive stage disease, which unfortunately is the majority, the current first-line standard of care is chemoimmunotherapy. In the U.S. and Europe, the approved options are platinum and atoposide with a PD-L1 inhibitor, either atezolizumab, based on the Empower 133 trial, or durvalimab, based on the Caspian trial. Different checkpoint inhibitors are available in other parts of the world with similar outcomes. We know that a subset of patients will achieve long-term disease control and survival with this approach. But what options exist for those who do not? So today we're going to focus on subsequent therapies for small cell lung cancer, and I'm privileged to be joined today by two expert thoracic medical oncologists and physician scientists who have a particular interest in small cell lung cancer. So first, from the University of Manchester, where she is professor and chair of thoracic oncology, we have Dr. Fiona Blackhall. Dr. Blackhall is a consultant and the Lung Disease Group Chair and Director of Research and Innovation at the Christie Foundation NHS Trust. Fiona, thanks for joining us. Hello, Stephen. A pleasure. We're also joined today by Dr. Misty Shields, an assistant professor at Indiana University and recipient of an ISLC fellowship grant for her work on small cell lung cancer. Misty, we're glad to have you here with us today. Hello, Stephen. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. So let me start by presenting a case. We're going to discuss a 62-year-old female who presented about six months ago with dyspnea and cough. And so after her initial treatment for a COPD exacerbation didn't provide relief, had a chest X-ray that showed a right hilar mass. Subsequent imaging identified a large central right hilar mass, a, a typical presentation for small cell lung cancer, enlarged bilateral mediastinal lymph nodes, multiple liver and bone metastases. She had a CT-guided liver biopsy that showed small cell lung cancer. An MRI showed no metastases. Apart from COPD, no real other relevant medical history and, you know, prior to her current symptoms, fully active, independent, a good performance status. So this patient began frontline treatment with carboplatin, atoposide, and atezolizumab, and that's based on the Empower 133 trial. So before we talk about later course, a quick note on initial therapy. Fiona, maybe we'll start with you. How do you approach the choice of platinum agent here, cisplatin versus carbo? So, and Stephen, this is a long debated question, as you know, and, and my approach is actually quite straightforward. It is always carboplatin. It is better tolerated, and there's really no compelling evidence for better efficacy of cisplatin. We have um, uh, data evidence from a meta-analysis that is now about a decade old. Uh, we have more contemporary data that is directly relevant to this case of uh, the patients who received cisplatin in uh, the, the Caspian trial of chemo-IO. So investigators could choose between carboplatin and cisplatin. Uh, the majority of patients had carboplatin. For those who had cisplatin, there was a subgroup analysis that showed no signal of, of better survival. So there really is no evidence to select cisplatin in this setting. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, and in the U.S., we actually have a shortage of some of the platinum drugs. And so the flexibility there provides some benefit for us. Uh, this patient received carboplatin. She noted symptomatic improvement right away after the first cycle of therapy. That's common for us. No notable adverse events. Completed all four cycles of the planned induction carboplatin, etoposide, atezolizumab, then began monthly maintenance atezolizumab. A quick pause here. Misty, can you comment a little on the use of PCI in this setting? Maybe explain what that is and what your own practice is. Yes, absolutely. So PCI, that is prophylactic cranial irradiation. Uh, PCI and also concurrent chemotherapy with thoracic radiation have both demonstrated meaningful benefit for patients who have limited stage. So that is small cell lung cancer that's confined to one radiation field within the chest. Those patients have had meaningful benefit. So for patients who achieve a good response to therapy in the limited stage, PCI remains standard of care, thereby reducing overall incidence of brain metastases at three years, as well as overall survival in these patients. However, if we're talking about a patient who has extensive stage, the role of PCI in these patients does remain controversial after first-line chemo immunotherapy or chemotherapy historically. So the pivotal trial by New England Journal of Medicine in 2007 by Ben Slotman and the EORTC radiation and lung cancer groups demonstrated that PCI reduced symptomatic brain mets. So that is 25 gray that it's divided into 10 fractions of treatment that helped improve overall survival and disease-free survival at one year. However, in 2017, there was a phase three study uh, out of Japan by Takahazi et al., that showed no overall survival benefit with the role of PCI plus MRI surveillance versus MRI surveillance alone. Actually, this trial was stopped early due to futility with an inferior overall survival, though not statistically significant. So in my practice, for my patients, I do recommend close monitoring with a serial MRI brain imaging. And for those who are, for some reason, unable to undergo regular scans, there could be a shared decision-making about possibly introducing the role of PCI in these patients. However, this is not my typical practice. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there are ongoing studies, and it's still a question that, that I have equipoise answering, but the cost of PCI really in terms of cognitive deficit, the risk of, of dementia memory loss, that really is a big one and really factors into to quality of life. Um, this patient did not get PCI, but maybe we can have a quick comment on another type of radiation uh, Fiona, something that we use a little bit more in Europe and the UK than, than we do in the US, consolidative thoracic radiation therapy. Can you talk about how you incorporate TRT in, in your patients with small cell? Yeah, so th this is quite a contentious area, of you, as you've alluded to. And so this is giving um, radiotherapy to the, the thorax, to the often the, the primary tumor in this particular case, uh, there is um, a bulky uh, central tumor. So we have um, the, the seminal study that informed, largely informed our European practice was the CREST trial that was also led by Ben Slotman, um, a publication in The Lancet in 2015 that uh, randomized patients to receiving radiotherapy to the thorax after a response to uh, platinum etoposide in the extensive stage setting. There was no uh, one-year overall survival benefit between those who received radiotherapy and those who didn't, but in a pre-planned secondary analysis, uh, there was superior survival at two years 
of 13% in those who received thoracic radiotherapy compared to 3% in those who didn't. The benefit was greatest by far for those with residual intrathoracic disease. The challenge and the real problem we have now is that, of course, this was for chemotherapy, not chemotherapy with an immune checkpoint inhibitor that is the subject of, of this case and that is now our standard of care. And in those chemo IO trials, of course, as, as you both know, there was not integration of thoracic radiotherapy. So we have a paucity of data to inform our approach. I would say now, Stephen, that there is a shift in practice within Europe uh, because of that lack of evidence in the chemo IO setting. So we really need um, prospective and clinical investigation of um, the potential benefit of the addition of radiotherapy. What we do in practice, what I do in practice, is adopt a case-by-case -case approach, shared decision-making with the patient, talking about the, the current lack of evidence if the patient has received immune therapy, working in very close conjunction with our radiation oncologists. And they, in general, lead that conversation in this patient, depending on response to chemotherapy with the, the central disease, this may be a patient where thoracic radiotherapy might be considered, but there is much less certainty about the benefit in the context of giving immune therapy, plus a possible increased risk of pneumonitis. So there are some possible safety concerns. We definitely have to think about those interactions. We will have some prospective study. In the U.S., there's an NRG1 study, um, or an NRG study uh, led by uh, Dr. Quinn Nguyen at MD Anderson, the Raptor trial. Um, but we'll be quite a ways before we see data from that study. So this particular patient did not receive PCI, did not receive thoracic radiation, felt pretty well on therapy, but unfortunately, a CT scan showed progression of liver metastases and a new splenic metastasis about six months after completing induction chemotherapy. No symptoms, labs actually pretty normal. So let's talk a bit about the management of relapsed small cell lung cancer after chemoimmunotherapy. And you know, while I know both of you are very active clinical investigators, let's start with off-trial options. And the first question I have, we, we have to answer, is about platinum retreatment. Uh, we'll, we'll go to Misty. Misty, can you explain what that is and what your approach is? Yes. So for relapsed small cell lung cancer, um, one variable to consider is the platinum-based treatment-free interval known as chemotherapy-free interval. So when was the last time that the patient saw chemotherapy, including a platinum-based doublet, such as platinum pentoposide? So this variable can really inform us about the biology of the disease and specifically whether a patient's tumor is platinum refractory or platinum sensitive. So the platinum retreatment really can depend upon this interval as one variable uh, of your treatment decision. So the interval of response can be described as a chemotherapy-free interval of either less than 90 days and greater than 90 days or less than 180 days or greater than 180 days. This really depends on whether you're practicing outside of the U.S. with the ESMO guidelines or inside the U.S. with our NCCN guidelines, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. What we know, do know about the treatment of patients who have early relapse, so less than three months, those patients, unfortunately, their outcomes are historically poor and treatment is really uncertain. So that's where 
the role of investigational trials are really recommended. So outside of that and kind of the off-trial FDA-approved regimens, really the patient factors um, are incredibly important here. So patients at this point, you know, they are um, outside of their platinum-based therapy. So they're, they're really starting to notice some of their symptoms and feeling like themselves um, are really coming back. So their hair is growing back, their fatigue is improving, their counts are improving. So sometimes I find it's really hard to convince patients in this setting to return back to a platinum-based doublet if they really have experienced notable side effects or even complications on this regimen. Another piece of the puzzle is really hematologic reserve. So our patients generally experience myelosuppression as a known side effect of chemoimmunotherapy. This is the lowering of blood counts during this time with our first-line therapy. And it may be that their hematologic reserve and their bone marrow is affected. And so for this reason, I do incorporate trilocyclib, a CDK4-6 inhibitor in the first-line setting for extensive stage small cell to limit myelosuppression. Yeah, I think that there's a, a big divide with retreatment. You know, the, the data are pretty old, and I think largely it reflects the lack of other great options. You know, my, my own practice, I, I don't really do a lot of retreatment. I, I, my general rule is that the second go around, they probably get about half as much benefit as the first time. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll take it case to case, but I kind of like trying something new. I think the ceiling's a lot higher. At the same time, I totally agree with what you said. We, we have to involve the patient with it, and probably depends on sort of, you know, how well they did with, with platinum the first time. And if there were a lot of side effects the first time, it makes it less appealing the second time. So I think there's a lot of room for discussion and, and a lot of reasonable options. Uh, Fiona, can you talk a little bit about your approach? And maybe I'll add something to your question. If you do retreat with platinum, do you continue the immunotherapy? So uh, really important discussion around this, this second line uh, space because I completely agree. I think, Mister, you captured really nicely there how this becomes nuanced and uh, tailored to the individual, the individual's lived experience of first line treatment and, and then end organ function, um, you know, hematological toxicities, tolerance, and and so on. Because the chance of benefiting from a retreatment with platinum or indeed any second line is is less than in the first line. And quality of life in, in such a life-limiting cancer is, is of the essence. So we have um, what we see in the facts and figures and statistics and the evidence, and we balance that against our uh, consultation with our individual patient and um, factor in that, that shared decision-making we we do use rechallenge relatively frequently in my in my personal practice and um, the question of continuing immunotherapy is a great one unfortunately our uh, regulatory uh, landscape in the UK prevents us from continuing the immunotherapy the it is a research question that is begging to be addressed in a pr- prospective study I don't have the luxury of continuing the immunotherapy and adding in platinum at this point in time. Let's go back to to this specific case, um, Fiona. Here we have a relapse at six months after completing chemotherapy. We'll say it's exactly six months to the day. And this was while getting maintenance immunotherapy. So here we're off study. Um, we have relapse small cell after chemoimmunotherapy. Misty, uh, in, in your practice, what do you recommend here? 
So I agree with you and your practice, Stephen. So um, honestly, I, I hesitate to rechallenge with platinum-based chemotherapy here in a patient, you know, who has platinum-sensitive disease. Right at six months, you know, I think it is reasonable to rechallenge. I don't often do, and this leads me to usually exploring other treatments or available trials, either in my institution or outside of my institution. I agree. I would not continue the immunotherapy here, especially if the relapse occurred in this setting of immunotherapy maintenance. Yeah. It's, it's something that, you know, if someone had gotten chemo radiation with no immunotherapy before, maybe that's a different situation because it's really, it's the only approved way to get immunotherapy, but hard to imagine it's doing much there. Um, Fiona, what, what would your approach be in the UK today? Yeah, it's very similar to, you know, coming from the same place and evidence base as Misty and and yourself, Um, a clinical trial, um, if there is one available, would would always be the starting point for discussion. We do re-challenge with um, platinum and topside relatively frequently, um, possibly a a sort of 50-50 situation. We can also use Topatique, and that would be the standard that we have approved. So it would be tailored to that individual patient in the absence of a trial, one of those two options. There really is a big drop off. I mean, our top three choices are, are pretty much always trial, 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 right? I mean, we we know yeah. the limitations with the currently available treatment. We want something new. There's some exciting drugs out there. Uh, but, you know, often patients don't have access to the trial. They're based on geography or maybe comorbidities. We know the populations are very exclusive. Um, we do, as as was mentioned, we do have several agents listed on our guidelines for relapse small cell lung cancer. Maybe we'll take a second to discuss a few of them. Uh, Fiona, you mentioned Topotecan. This has been, I'd call it our reluctant standard for decades now, uh, initially approved after being compared to CAV. No survival improvement with it, but actually a better quality of life, better symptom control with Topotecan, available in both IV and oral forms. But a lot of challenges with it. Lurbinectidin is a drug that does have U.S. FDA accelerated approval um, that was granted in June 2020. Misty, you have experience with both these agents. Can you compare and contrast your experience with, with these two drugs and, and how you approach your selection? Yes, yes. So I think, as you mentioned, Topotecan has been a reluctant standard in this setting. Um, however, in my opinion, in my practice, I think Topotecan is kind of an unpopular choice. Um, the dose schedule, the toxicities, albeit better than CAV, um, you know, in this new day and age and need for frequent intervention really makes a, I think a medical thoracic oncologist shy away generally from this regimen, although it is there and it is a possible option for treatment. So, you know, I think relapse small cell is an area of great unmet need and really until 2020 and the FDA accelerated approval of lorvenectin treatments are really lacking in this space, you know, given its overall response rate of approximately 35% in the basket trial of 105 patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer um, at the dose of 3.2 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks. This led to the FDA approval, accelerated approval and confirmation studies are underway with this dosing. I think it's really important to note that the data showed a medium time to um, treatment progression or disease progression was about four cycles and then improved the overall response rate improved to about 45% in patients who had platinum sensitive disease, kind of similar to our patient case here. Um, However, it does 
drop to about 25% in patients with platinum resistant disease. So again, kind of that information really may play into your treatment decision here for patients with relapsed uh, small cell lung cancer. We actually just recently presented some work at the 2023 Hawaii Lung Summit on our um, investigation of predictive biomarkers for lorvonextin. It is not Schlafen 11. Um, we have some exciting expression proteomics and work showing some variables that do correlate with uh, response and validation is uh, underway. But what was really important to note is in our cohort of 20, um, of 17 patients, we saw that nine of these patients on this retrospective study were on therapy for over eight cycles with seven of them on treatment for over 13 cycles up to 25 cycles. So those durable responders do exist and what makes those unique is uh, left to be investigated. Yeah, I definitely had some long-term responses as well. And and what's your experience been in terms of tolerability over time? You know, we think of topotecan, really red cell, uh, you know, myelosuppression, transfusions, a lot of asthenia, fatigue. It can be a tough medicine. Um, we do see consistent responses, and it's proven to be a tough drug to beat as a control arm. But, uh, you know, off-study in your practice, can you talk a little bit about tolerability of lorbinectinin? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, tolerability can be definitely patient specific and variable, you know, the kind of top five that I think about, you know, is typically fatigue, um, myelosuppression, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, so GI upset, you know, liver hepatotoxicity, and there's a rare um, possibility of rhabdomyolysis in these patients that you have to kind of monitor periodically for, you know, as you examine them, as well as with lab work. I mean, one of the other advantages of lorbinectin really is the schedule um, because topotecan five days in a row, it's a lot of chair time, lorbinectin one day. Um, but, you know, there are concerns about, you know, myelosuppression and certainly something we have to watch for. Um, Fiona, uh, what's your experience been with topotecan lorbinectin in that space? So I'm, I'm listening intently because we don't have lorbinectin funded in, in the UK. And so my experience was through en- enrolling patients to clinical uh trial of it and then looking at the the trial data my impression was that uh, tolerability for the reasons that misty has very eloquently and described you know is, is challenging that it is not necessarily an easier drug to give than topotecan we give topotecan orally so there, there is data showing um, equivalence of, of oral versus IV topotecan, so that helps us with the chair time and, and that problem but and makes it more convenient for patients. But my, my reading of both of these is that you know, we still have unmet need. These drugs are not as, as good as we would ideally like and are not as tolerated as well as we would ideally like for this patient population. Yeah, agreed. We certainly have a lot of room for improvement. You know, we think of lorbinectin, just to hit those highlights again, um, it's once daily. We have heme myelosuppression. The randomized trial with doxorubicin, the Atlantis trial, did not show an improvement in survival, but it was a lower dose. So uh, dose may be important here. We'll wait for the lagoon results with arenatecan. But small cell is interesting in that there are a lot of drugs that have activity, um, you know, a, a long list of agents that are capable of inducing responses, and a lot of those are in some of our guidelines, though not yet FDA approved. Misty, one drug we see listed in those guidelines, not an approved drug, but one that's listed as active, is temozolomide. Can I ask, do you ever use temozolomide for small cell lung cancer? 
I do. Um, you know, in the uh, realm of trials and outside of trials, off trials. So Temidar or Temozolamide is an oral alkylating agent. So it's used and indicated by the FDA for the treatment of glioblastoma multiforme, which is a GBM, a brain tumor, in conjunction with radiation and also in the maintenance setting, as well as in refractory anaplastic astrocytoma. So we know that based on this data um, and preclinical clinical studies, that Temidar has great CNS or central nervous system penetration and ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. So um, specifically, there is a big 10 uh, uh, trial LUN2462 with uh, Dr. Dwight Owen as the principal investigator that's interrogating the role of atizolizumab plus Temidar in two different dosing schedules uh, in the second and third line setting for relapsed extensive stage small cell lung cancer. I've also had patients that have had asymptomatic CNS involvement that have had prior radiation that were treated with Temidar with good CNS and systemic response. So again, it's really important to note as you're managing this, that myelosuppression can be a real toxicity with Temidar among other adverse events. So really close monitoring is recommended and supportive medications are needed to reduce the risk of opportunistic infections if the patient remains on therapy. Yeah, good reminder. I mean, these are oral agents, but these aren't TKIs. These are these are cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs, both oral topotecan and temozolamide, oral. Uh, so we think about nausea, we think about myelosuppression, I uh, think about alopecia, and also cost in the U.S., you, you know, even though the oral drugs are approved, not always fully reimbursed. So sometimes there could be a lot of out-of-pocket cost for them. When I think of other drugs with small cell lung cancer, uh, off-study, Fiona, uh, some time ago, there was a lot of enthusiasm sort of globally for arenatecan, even in the frontline setting. I'm sure you remember uh, all the enthusiasm for this agent. Do you ever use arenatecan today for small cell? So I, we don't uh, have arenatecan uh, funded, approved for use in in the UK. Uh, or or Europe first line. And uh, the reason for that is that despite uh, the exciting data from Asia and a positive randomized um, trial in Asia in, in the first line setting, the trial was not possible to replicate um, in a non-Asian population. There was a lot of um, focus on whether the there was a pharmacogenetic difference, um, so a difference in drug handling due to uh, pharmacogenetics in, in the different ethnic populations. Um, the, the exact reason for for the difference has has never been fully defined, but for that reason we don't use uh, irinotec and there's no advantage over um, platinum etoposide. For uh, I think that the most recent time I used arenatecan in the frontline setting was when there was a national etoposide shortage, uh, and so it really proved handy for that window where we didn't have access to etoposide. But but I agree that initial enthusiasm, at least in the U.S., didn't pan out. Um, still used often in Asia, where where clearly it's an active drug. Um, let's talk about the immunotherapy part, Misty. I think one of the first immunotherapy experiences for small cell was Checkmate 032, and when Scott Antonia showed sort of, you know, 26% two-year survival with nevoipi. Do you see a role for dual checkpoint blockade if a patient's already had PDL one and, and progressed during maintenance therapy? Any role there? Yeah, so I think that dual checkpoint blockade with, you know, PD-1 inhibitor plus 
the uh, addition of CTLA-4 inhibitors, I think it's very exciting. I think we don't quite know, and we don't know exactly who these patients are, but I think there's some exciting research that I'll talk about uh, that was just recently published. So I think we, we are seeing in the realm of non-small cell lung cancer, we are really seeing this dual engagement of the immune system, um, helping to overcome some aggressive biology specifically. You know, if we look at Checkmate 227, Checkmate 9LA, and the Poseidon regimens all are showing certain biology of certain subtypes, such as KEEP1, stick 11 and these KRAS mutant lung adenocarcinomas that we may be able to help overcome some of this aggressive biology. In small cell, I think this is also a very exciting field. You know, initially, nivolumab received FDA approval in 2018 for the third line setting based on the study reference Checkmate 032, where NEVO was compared to nevo IPI, had a similar overall survival um, across the two treatment arms. However, overall response rate was higher in the combination arm, so leading to the approval. However, the confirmatory studies with Checkmate 331 and Checkmate 451 failed to demonstrate overall survival benefit in other um, trials, and so prompting the indication with the FDA to then be withdrawn. There was recent work out of the JTO in May of 2023 by the groups of Dr. Charlie Rudin and Dr. Ann Forslan that showed recently um, the clinical correlate of the Checkmate 032 study showed that there was meaningful clinical benefit with dual immunotherapy um, or immunotherapy in these patients. So multiple lines of therapy receiving dual IO versus single agent IO that it's associated with increased antigen presentation, including the increased presence of CD8 T cells, as well as MHC class one status. So I think really this is a really hot area of interest for small cell and hopefully more to come. Yeah, certainly the empiric use, I think, isn't supported by the data, but hopefully we can figure out where these drugs can play a role. Fiona, your thoughts, dual checkpoint blockade, assuming you had access, any role for that if someone progressed during pdl one maintenance? So my my thoughts echo Misty's. I don't think I can add anything to that, that very thorough description of where the current evidence is at. I, I think that this is an area that that we need to factor in what the possible biomarkers um, are to select patients who may may benefit for a, a dual uh, checkpoint blockade and a, a lot of possibilities here, but at the moment, no evidence to do this as a routine and standard of care. Yeah, I... I... I discourage uh, our group from from doing that. I mean, certainly we have anecdotes where patients who received dual checkpoint nevo ipi long term survival certainly have that. But the evidence really suggests that the the nevo is probably doing the heavy lifting for most of those patients. And um, you know, in the absence of randomized data, I agree, uh, need a little bit more work there. You know, uh, Fiona, in non small cell lung cancer, we sometimes approach oligoprogression differently, where we use uh, local therapies like radiation, if there's just one area of progression. You ever think of doing that for small cell lung cancer? So an, an excellent question. Um, I'm not aware of any uh, evidence to inform this. And so it does uh, boil down to the individual patient and their, the pattern of, of cancer I have um, just in the last um, week or so had uh, a couple of patients, one with uh, uh, isolated uh, adrenal 
lesion site of progression with uh, excellent disease control elsewhere. And so uh, I have run that exact question and passed my clinical oncology, radiation oncology colleagues. Historically, we've taken the view that small cell is, is rapidly aggressive, that um, in the context of oligoprogression, there is probably more um, widespread progression very soon on the horizon. But uh, in patients who have that long duration of benefit on a, a checkpoint inhibitor from, uh, from first-line chemo-IO, you know, we, we are seeing a different pattern of progression. So I think this is an area that will need more focus moving forwards. I, I'm not sure whether a clinical trial is is going to be possible mm. to design for this, but perhaps a, a real-world evidence approach and collecting some uh, data from cohorts of patients where this has been applied. We've got knowledge of circulating biomarkers and small cells circulating tumor DNA, and um, whether that can give us a systemic readout and help to inform patients with potentially more indolent disease, a lower burden of disease who could benefit from a local therapy. I'm, I'm interested in that concept. Hmm. That's an interesting way to stratify there. I agree that it's usually the harbinger of, of more widespread progression. Misty, what's your approach there? Oligo progression? Is that a real thing? So I think definitely, um, you know, I, I will echo what Fiona has eloquently said here. I think, you know, the management of oligoprogression in small cells is really truly patient specific. Um, so, you know, shared decision-making, of course, and then a really comprehensive process to kind of look at the patient's fitness, where they are in their treatment, other variables, like, such as their goals of therapy and goals of care. I think that radiation therapy typically plays a significant role for me in oligoprogression progression. I think that as alluded to, you know, oligoprogression could be a precursor to possible fulminant progression. And so what's the cadence of the oligoprogression and, you know, really for these patients, close monitoring is key um, to ensure uh, that there's not another, you know, shoot a, to drop, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, there's some room for evolution here. I think in the past, people were really hesitant to do SRS in the brain because they thought, well, we see one, we're going to see a lot, and whole brain was our standard for a long time. But, you know, some recent data suggesting SRS really can play a role. So I think we're open to revisiting it. But like the, what you mentioned, Fiona, about maybe using biomarkers to help guide who could really benefit from that approach, a uh, tough study to write. So I'm going to leave I'm going to leave you to do that through BTOG, Fiona. <laughs> we're going to pass that to you. But, you know, let's, let's look to the future here. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on some of these emerging agents. It's an exciting time for small cell research. Fiona, you've been involved in the development of a drug called Tarlatamab. Uh, that's a novel DLL3 bispecific. Briefly, can you talk about that drug, how it works, and, and how well it works? Yeah, so this, you know, we've been talking about our, our not great options. And so it, it is really exciting that we have some new classes of drug um, actively being developed for our patients. Tarlatamab is one of a class of bispecific T-cell engager. There are some others, HPN328, BI764532. Um, we've heard data at uh, ASCO on 
BI764532 in Terlatumab. Data was published in JCO earlier this year with Louis Pazares as lead author. So bispecifics um, are targeted to uh, two antigens, an antigen on the cancer cell, in, in this case DLL3, and an antigen on the, the T cell, CD3. And how they how they work is to in, engage, bring the T cells to the cancer cells, to activate the T cells and induce cancer cell kill. The uh, challenge for immune checkpoint inhibitors in, in small cell is that uh, there needs to be an, an intact antigen um, presenting machinery to to engage, recruit and engage the, the T cells, the immune cells. And um, that uh, mechanism is often suppressed and, and, and that uh, mechanism can be detected by MHC1 uh, expression. So there is a suppression of, of that machinery and the bispecific essentially overcomes that block as it were. So these uh, these bispecifics um, look really very promising. In the uh, case of terlatumab, the phase one data was published on 107 patients, a, a dose escalation, a very classical dose escalation design. Patients did not have to have uh, selection for tumors on the basis of DLL3, but uh, tumor was collected for DLL3 correlation. The, the top line results for those uh, patients were a response rate of 23.4%. Uh, the provocative um, observation was the duration of response, so median duration of 12.3 months, a disease control rate of 51.4%. So there is a a good strong signal i i would say for um for this bispecific and similarly bi764532 had a a similar response rate in early phase testing in in the mid uh, 20% range randomized trials are needed and and are ongoing uh, selected dose of, of 10 milligrams has been selected to take forward for tolatumab. There was some exploratory data suggesting that increased DLL3 uh, correlates with an increased clinical benefit. So in terms of efficacy, there there is some, uh, a good to strong signal. Um, the the proof will of course be in the the randomized studies moving forwards an important note about these agents is the side effect profile so uh, cytokine release syndrome in particular is is a class effect and this occurred uh, for the phase 1 of tolatumab in uh, just over half the patients. It's generally described as, as being low grade. It was recorded and reported as low grade and manageable, but this is a, a different type of side effect for us to manage in our um, in our institutes, hospitals, practices. It requires uh, training of staff. And in this patient population, 
tolerance of um, cytokine release syndrome, hypotension, tachycardia um, may may be uh, impacted by other comorbid conditions. Often our patients, as you you both know, have cardiac and, and respiratory comorbidities. So there is a learning curve here in handling the side effects, being able to deliver these uh, bite therapies safely. But apart from that, certainly some early promise and uh, a very exciting field of development. Yeah, I think the administration might be a challenge um, uh, for inpatient use, but hopefully we could see that transition outpatient. We're going to need to get a little better giving some of these complex drugs really where the future is, but great to see that activity. Misty, we've seen a little promise with antibody drug conjugates in small cell as well. As well. Can you remind our listeners what these are and, and how they might be relevant to, to small cell? Yes, so um, antibody drug conjugates or ADCs um, really have started to show some um, really meaningful benefits in patients and resulting in practice changing standard of care for other cancer types. So a good example of this would be breast cancer within HER2, which is famtrastuzumab deruxtecan, um, showing uh, a, a, a significant efficacy signal uh, in patients who had received multiple lines of therapy, and then also then showing superiority over TDM1, a standard for many years. So, you know, ADCs and small cell are really an up and coming field. So this is a antibody that is linked um, with different linkers to a payload, whether that's something like leukomyosin or um, direct secan, typically topo one inhibitor um, payloads. And so these antibody drug conjugates such as ABBV011 um, comes to mind. Uh, this is an antibody drug conjugate that's targeting SEZ6. So this has a clique in my SM payload. So the recent phase one data was just presented at ASCO 2023 by Daniel Mergenstern. Um, so this showed that ABBV011 alone or in combination with a PD-1 inhibitor, bugaligumab, uh, was presented as an oral abstract at ASCO, um, showing that it was well tolerated at a dose of one meg per keg with really promising efficacy in this patient population who had received really two or more lines of therapy in the majority of patients enrolled. This was a SEZ6 selected study. Um, no maximum tolerated dose was reached. And I think there's ongoing investigation of this combination in this drug um, in this setting. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting developments. We didn't have time to get over some of the subtype work that you know, doctors Charlie Rudin, Chaparna Sen, Lauren Byers are doing, um, you know, where expression of certain transcriptional regulators seems to predict different biologies. And I think the bottom line is there are slightly different diseases and there are some that may be enriched for long-term responders. But right now, we're not ready to use those to select treatment uh, just yet. Uh, maybe very briefly, uh, again, one more question here. Fiona, what are you excited about in small cell for drug development? So I'm excited that so much is happening. You know, it's been a long time coming for small cell and it's 10 years this year since uh, the United States designated small cell as a research priority for the Recalcitrant Cancer Act. And I think we're beginning to really see the benefits of, of that uh, a fantastic global community industry interested in developing drugs for small cell. We can... Uh, do biomarker-driven studies in patients with small cell lung cancer. We're marrying biology biomarkers, liquid and tissue biopsies to better match the uh, tumor biology 
uh, to the the treatment. So that that is what I'm excited about. I'm I'm not a, a gambling girl, so I'm not going to bet on any particular <laughs> drug coming through. <laughs> Misty, what else is holding promise for small cell? So I think uh, Fiona alluded to this, and um, and we've mentioned this a few times throughout this podcast, but liquid biopsies. So I think that liquid biopsies are going to be the future for small cell lung cancer. Perhaps I am a gambling person. I used to play and compete in poker, so perhaps. <laughs> um, and so I think that you know small cell is incredibly unique in that its biology and early proclivity for metastatic spread um, can be used to our advantage, I think, given the number of circulating tumor cells and circulating tumor DNA that is shed is very, very high. So I think we ought to leverage this to our advantage, whether it's monitoring treatment management or understanding of the disease, and I think more to come in this space. We're about out of time. I'm going to try to sneak in one unrelated question. Fiona, um, you know, I think our audience would really love to hear more about your background. Do you think you could share just a few words about your career path and maybe why you decided to focus on lung cancer? So my career path started in lung cancer in the early 90s. I was on a cardiorespiratory rotation and I landed in a fairly recently established uh, pulmonary oncology unit, a, a ward dedicated to looking after patients with lung cancer and the uh, the leads there, Heather Anderson, pioneer in the field, and Nick Thatcher had a, a culture established where they endeavored to have a clinical study for, for every single patient, even those with very poor performance status. And that was my first encounter of uh, doing research alongside clinical care, um, of bringing those two together and for patients who had hugely uh, high unmet need. I was drawn to those um, who were, for whatever reason, underserved and, and stigmatized in my career. It felt incredibly purposeful to be working on lung cancer and for and with patients with lung cancer. So that took me then to going to uh, uh, Toronto to a fellowship with uh, another pioneer in the field, Francis Shepard, and uh, I've just mentioned two female role models there too, who um, showed me what potentially was was possible as a, a, a woman at an early stage in a career where there were very few female role models at that time. And I also had the privilege to work for Ming Chao, a molecular pathologist, of, of course, and so came back to Manchester to establish um, a translational research focus in my everyday clinical practice and uh, have never looked back. And, and we're better for it. Thank you, Fiona. Um, uh, really great to hear. Misty, uh, you as well. Do you think you could share a bit about, about your path, your motivation to, to study and treat this disease? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, uh, when I was 15, um, lost my dad to small cell lung cancer. Um, he was a Marine and, uh, and very strong and very stoic. Um, and he was diagnosed, uh, at the age of 48. Um, and, uh, you know, I saw my dad going through treatments and trials. Um, he was cared for at the VA, uh, in Dallas. And I knew then that that was, um, what was placed on my, placed on my heart, um, to, um, to help care for, for patients who were afflicted by the disease. And so, um, you know, we lost my dad in 2000. Um, and, uh, while I was in high school, I reached out to 
in the days of AOL, um, before Google, uh, reached out to Dr. John Minna at UT Southwestern, who is really the grandfather for lung cancer research, and um, asked him, how do I become someone like you? How do I uh, you know, learn about lung cancer and how do I treat patients like you? And he said, you know, get good grades and come join my lab someday. And so I did just that. I went to college, studied biochemistry and genetics, and then went on to uh, join, apply and uh, join his lab at UT Southwestern, where we studied lung cancer and found neuro-D and small cell lung cancer as the second small cell subtype, um, and went on to medical school to to treat patients at the bedside. And um, 10 years later, here I am uh, with a practice at Indiana University, Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center, um, and a translational laboratory studying acquired chemo resistance and small cell lung cancer. It's thank thank you for sharing, Misty. It's you know, we're we're glad to have you as a colleague here and and the two of you making such strides for this disease. I think the future looks very bright for us. But as much as I'd love to to talk more with both of you. Uh, we are out of time. So I want to thank both of my guests today for their time joining us on the podcast and for all their ongoing contributions to the field. Uh, Misty, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Fiona, as always, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Ah, pleasure. Thanks so much. And I look forward to seeing both of you and our listeners as well at an upcoming ISLC meeting. That concludes this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope that you'll tune in on the first and third Tuesdays of every month to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 